episode seven of That's Why We Read, a podcast by literacy educators for literacy educators. I am Sarah Ramsey. I'm Ingrid Massey. And I'm Toby Thompson. So today we are going to talk about phonological um, awareness and phonemic awareness and um, the difference and um, the research behind those things, how that works in the brain and um, some activities that hopefully will make um, practical application in your classrooms or with your children or your students. So, Toby, I know you're going to... I'm going to start us off today with the difference between phonological and phonemic awareness. And I think most of us are familiar with the phonological awareness umbrella with all of the components that are underneath it, all of the little raindrops. Um, I read an analogy yesterday, I think, that compares phonological awareness to a house, which I think makes more sense to me because the house is divided into pieces, like the the words in the sentence, rhyme and alliteration, syllables and onset and rhyme. And then at the very top of the house is phonemic awareness because it's the more difficult skill. Mm-hmm. It's still phonological awareness, but it's different. So... That's a great example. I, I loved it. I had never seen the house example. I, I hadn't like either. That. It made more sense to me right. because with the umbrella... It's not contained. It's not contained. Yeah. It's all little raindrops. Mm-hmm. But this, the house shows the progression. And you know what never made sense to me? Why are there raindrops underneath the umbrella? <laughs> right. That's the one part that there shouldn't be raindrops. So I was always like, uh, yeah. I mean, I get the general theme, but also if yeah. we're... The analogy really didn't make sense. If for that me. rain, if that umbrella was doing its job, it, yeah, exactly, we wouldn't have rain <laughs> underneath it. <laughs> so, phonological awareness is an overarching skill. It's the ability to hear and manipulate units of sound in spoken language: syllables, the onset, the rhyme, but and also the phonemes. And phonological awareness is central to children learning how to decode and spell. Um. David Kilpatrick says that phonological awareness is the single most important factor in differentiating struggling readers from successful readers. And so it it is the very first pillar after after we talked about oral language. Mm-hmm. Phonemic awareness is the ability to hear and manipulate the smallest unit of sound, which is called a phoneme in a sp- in spoken language. So Phonological awareness is is the big units or all the units, and phonemic awareness is the smallest units. Smallest unit. Well, I can't talk today. <laughs> um, we know that words are not whole units, but are co articulated sounds. So when you, the exercise that we did at Delonaghy, where you're you're counting the number of sounds in words, and then we, when we pronounce them, we're putting all of those sounds together. Um, It includes isolation, blending, segmenting, adding, deleting, substituting. Um, Adding, deleting, and substituting of phonemes is lumped into one category called manipulation. And both Louisa Motes and David Kilpatrick believe that it's the manipulation that plays a critical role in creating proficient and fluent readers because it's most closely related to reading connected text. And I love that you mentioned that that all adding, deleting, and substituting are under manipulation because for years I would see people hand out like, here are the five skills you need to know. Here are the seven skills you need to know. Here are the six. And I'm like, how can there be five, six, seven, eight skills? But then you realized, oh, manipulation is all of those things. So someone who's talking about the five skills, they're lumping them together. And then some people are laying them all out. So right. And, and I think it's important to lay them all out because... Mm-hmm. If you're playing, if you're, the teacher needs to understand that because they're going to actually play games where they add or delete or substitute. Okay. So, um, you know, manipulation may not get to the explicit nature that we might need to have to work with the student, so. Exactly. Um, And then when we think about reading one of the the infographics (laughs) 
that we talked about before. That yeah. not we didn't talk about this one before, oh, the but there's the four-part processing model infographic, which is kind of a, a simplistic view of how reading happens. Um, and at the base of it, you've got the phonological processor and the orthographic processor. And the phonological um, processing system, if we think about where that is in the brain, if you make the hang 10 sign with your left hand, with your pinky sticking out and your thumb sticking out and your three fingers folded, folded together, you put your three fingers over your ear so that your pinky is kind of at your temple and your thumb is at the back of your head, those places... <laughs> <laughs> not, not like you're talking on a phone. Oh, okay. I was like, guys, listen, my pinky is not there, okay? <laughs> I'm trying it for those of you who can't see on our podcast. We need to do a video. So when you put that on your hip, put the three folded fingers on your left ear, put your pinky where it's kind of touching your simple and your thumb where it's touching the base of your of your skull. Oh, wait, baby. That's... Pinky up <laughs> on your temple. Rotate? Do this. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. Fold it in. Fold it in. Did I do that right? Sideways. Oh, sideways. There you go. Straight back. Oh, my goodness, guys. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> wow. Okay. We love you so <laughs> So uh, I told you, spatial awareness is not my thing. <laughs> so the phonological processing system, I mean, simplistically, it's it's those three areas where your hand touches if you do the hang ten. Um, so that includes the frontal lobe, which is in charge of pronunciation and articulation, an area at the back of the parietal lobe, and then an area at the top in the back part of the temporal lobe, which is in, in charge of phoneme analysis and phoneme graphing association. Um, the point of the phonological processor is to focus on automaticity in the early grades. And this, this particular processor enables us to perceive and remember and interpret and produce um, the speech sound system, not only of our language, but of any foreign languages that may, we might be learning. Um, many of the jobs that relate to reading, so like perception, memory, production of speech, um, all of those phonemic awareness and phonological awareness um, tasks happen in the phonological processor. Um, we know that students who have difficulty with their phonological processor um, have troubles remembering sounds. Um, they have troubles blending sounds together. They have difficulty recognizing the differences between similar sounds and words. Um, and then they also have trouble spelling all of the sounds in a word. And I think that speaks to why this subject is so important, I think, because if you understand all that it undergirds when reading starts to happen, and, you know, teachers always see as the breakdown of what we're like, okay, why isn't this working? Well, if you understand there's a processor in their brain that's actually doing this work, you're like, oh, something's wrong there. And this is how I can support that. Exactly. Um, because sometimes as a teacher, you're going to look for information online and you don't even know the right words to use. But now that you have, you know, there's a phonological processor, you can do that. So that's great. Exactly. Um, a couple of people that that are important with this phonological processing system, Stanislaus Dehane is one. Um, and then Mark Seidenberg. Is it Mark? I believe so. Mark yeah. Seidenberg. Yeah. Um, Seidenberg and McClelland are actually the ones who proposed this four-part processing model, and they did that way before any of the um, experiments and brain, brain scans showed where reading happened. Somehow mm -hmm. they figured it out that it was before. those areas. So and what year was that, Debbie? That was 1989. 89. Oh, wow. See, the, the more <laughs> we dig, the farther back we go. Yeah, and you realize, oh, this stuff's been around for a long time. A long time long time and what's great about knowing these researchers is that then um it's like it piques your awareness so that you, first of all you can go look these people up they have great videos on youtube and things mm -hmm. like that um but then 
it will start to like we talked you know at the be- some of our beginning podcasts where we're building schema you're like oh as I learn these researchers I can go and read their books or if I see their name I'm like oh that might be a, an important person to watch their video or things like that so that I can start to piece all this stuff together and understand it exactly I know um the first researcher that you mentioned how do you how pronounce Stanislas Dehane Dehane I have just started recently seeing um, several of his videos. And they are, uh, some of them, when he gives talks for an hour, are a lot. But some of the shorter ones, um, I'm like, oh, that's why that works. <laughs> you know. So to listen to him discuss how they came upon this and what you know how it helps is really interesting um, and helpful as a teacher to have that background knowledge. Well, and like we were talking earlier, too, when you look at the dates, it just goes to show that this science of reading is not anything new it's right. been around for mm-hmm. forever it's just kind of that not... we're yeah it wasn't at the forefront right. of instruction yet. Thank yes you. no and i i remember in grad school one of my professors talking about some of the things that researchers are doing right now won't really show up in a classroom sometimes for 30 40 years wow. Which is um, crazy. Yeah. Because it takes, and he used the example of like the Titanic. He's like, you can't just, he goes, it's not a speedboat. You can't just flip on a dime. Like, he's like, you can't just move. When it's something as big as education in a country, he's like, it's just going to move slower for that trickle down effect in essence to happen. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. And so many of us get. Um, bound by what we are doing Mm -hmm. and teaching is a difficult job Mm -hmm. it can be very overwhelming and you're just trying to keep you know 45 balls in the air all the time and making lots of decisions and I think it is difficult and sometimes frustrating and overwhelming for teachers to think, oh, and now you're telling me I have to do something brand new or different. And so I think that's why we see that, you know, it's a slow integration because we just have to take small bites of things and add those back in. It's not something that you can just go in and say, I'm going to completely redo absolutely everything that I do in teaching reading because I think that would just be chaos yeah and I think the great thing that when you keep bringing up that it's been around for so long what you realize is most of what you're doing in the classroom is probably spot on Mm -hmm. sure it's just um like the the book that that you know we've talked about before the shifts um it really is just a shift Mm -hmm. a slight shift in sometimes the language or just a slight shift in your understanding that helps you to go at it maybe just a, a little bit different way um, and so I think that's, I mean, you know, the language is still the language. We've been doing a lot of these, the things that we were talking about on this podcast or in the science of reading, um, we're in the reading community for a long time. We just maybe weren't plumbing the depths that we, we know to do now. It's like, um, it, it's like we're speaking in different dialects. Yeah. So, you know, you may be calling something a soda or a pop and I'm calling it a Coke or mm-hmm. whatever, we're we're talking about the same thing. We're right. just using different language to do it. Um, and unfortunately it seems to be the vocabulary that trips gets the sticking point every time. Like I remember when orthographic mapping became popular and I was like, so then I would go, Oh, spelling. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now I'm, you know, I know I knew orthography had to do with, you know, with spelling, but I was like, oh, you're just talking about teaching them to break it up when they spell it, which I've done for years. Mm-hmm. Now I know. You're the, mapping the sounds. Exactly. The and now you, you also that helps, I think, not to get your defenses up. I think sometimes we learn things from people and we love those people and maybe it really helped us. And so we're like, don't touch this mm-hmm. part of my learning or my memories or whatever. And so it's important to remember you're like, okay. There's something wrong with, you know, my teachers did teach me spelling right at 15 times, you know, or five times or whatever. And I did learn to spell really, really well. Mm -hmm. So you're like, 
it's not that that was a horrible thing and my teacher was a bad person because she did that. It's that now we know other more interesting, engaging ways to teach spelling. Um, and um, that's that's a good thing for our students. When so. you know better, you do better. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Oprah? Uh, actually, it was Maya, Maya Angelou who oh, said Angela. it. And then, but this is this great book that we have been mm-hmm. reading. And it is, it's, it, I think, gives you permission mm-hmm. to say, okay, I am learning more. I mean, right here in this room, we have nearly a hundred years of teaching experience oh, between God, the three I of us. <laughs> I think it's more like 60. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We got a lot of years between the three of us. And, do, you know, I look back and, yeah, I did some things that weren't so great because I didn't mm-hmm. know better. The difference is when you learn better and you know better, you can do better. Um, well, and sometimes you don't know the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You did, here's the thing, you know, there are lots of strategies that we've used or, you know, instructional tools that we've used that they do help one part of one area. But mm-hmm. as you learn more about how to teach reading, you can, and I think you talk about this a lot, Toby, where you're like, oh, when I have lots of tools, I can adjust really quickly to fix whatever particular student with that specific situation. I can I can really hone in on that. And I think, you know, so everything that you've learned, it's not that you're tossing anything out. Mm-hmm. It's just you're adding more tools to the tool belt so that when you come across a student that is having an issue, you're able to jump right in there and help that student because now you've got more options. Exactly. So, absolutely. I, I think that's the way I think you can look at it where it doesn't feel like, oh, so I've been doing everything wrong and toss it out. No. Nope. That's a glass half full, you know, mm-hmm. mentality. We have to look at it. Or it's not glass half full. Glass, glass half, half empty. empty. <laughs> I'm so glass half full. <laughs> you are. You're <laughs> you but you have to look at it like, okay, this is an opportunity to add to this, not that I have to take anything away or get rid of anything um, completely. So anyway. So speaking of phonological awareness, um, that's that's my piece today. So, um, and I really liked, I took a lot of the stuff that I'm going to talk about today from the book that you were just talking about, The Know Better, Do Better, um, which I, it's not a large book. Mm-mm. But I mean, word for word, pound for pound, this book, I think, packs a real punch. It does. Of all the books that I've read recently in the science of reading, I probably, this would be first on my list right now to tell teachers to read. It's short. It's readable. It's, um, uh, it gives you so many activities and it doesn't, it doesn't go on forever and ever about everything it just gets right to what you need um on all the important subjects so and it's nineteen dollars and eighty nine yeah cents i mean on it's Amazon prime right now yeah that's a great it's it's, it's just a, it's a well-spent twenty dollars yes really and is. these people they did a great job of boiling down mm-hmm. exactly what you need to know and connecting why it makes sense and one of the i feel like one of the things they did really well was explain phonological awareness in the sense that phonological awareness is, um, as Toby mentioned, it's the umbrella term that um, phonemic awareness falls up under. But it's this idea of if phonemes are the smallest unit of sound, the rest of phonological awareness is all the bigger parts of spoken language. So words, syllables, onset and rhyme. These are the bigger parts. And I love how... It really, phonological awareness, when you follow the, it's the continuum, you're moving from whole to part, which is phoneme, and then you're going to move from phoneme back into the student actually breaking the code by, or, you know, we call this the alphabetic principle or breaking the, uh, cracking the code when they're reading. We're going to take them from, hey, you're already speaking in sentences when you come to us. We're going to take you from that awareness. We're going to make you aware of the sounds and the words there. And then we're going to take you down to the smallest part. We're going to build you right back up to where you're the person putting the sounds into code or to print. So it's going from speech to print in that way. Um, And so um, I, 
in, in this book on page 31, if you if you have it or if you get it, you can reference that page. But they have a phonological awareness um, continuum and they talk about what we where we started last in last episode, which was oral language. And so they talk about oral language or rhymes and alliteration. So, for example, they give the example of my cute cat wears a hat. So just playing like we were talking about last uh, week, lots playing with lots of language. And then they want students to become aware of how many words are in a sentence because they want them to start to understand, okay, yes, we say all these sounds together, but they, we they do have a start and an ending point, and that start and ending point is called a word. And um, then from there, we move into the, that big word has syllables in it, either one or more. And then that syllable has an onset and a rhyme. And then from there, we'll go to phonemes, which um, you'll be talking about. But one of the things that they talked about in here that I thought was great is they said, start with listening. And we've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but when you're looking at your ELA standards, it's speaking, listening, reading, writing. And listening is, I think, a part that gets left out, especially when students are struggling with phonological awareness and phonemic awareness, is go back to, are they even stopping to look and listen? And this is something that they the authors talked about in this book that I thought were great. It says, foundational uh, skills instruction requires at every level listening that meets what we dubbed the three A's, children being alert, active, and analytical. And so one of the ways that they train them to be alert um, and active and analytical is they start with lots of games where they're listening. And I did this with my students um, when I noticed that their oral language and their listening skills were poor. Um, we used to do a, a, an animal bingo where there was a bingo card and it had pictures of real animals on it. And then I went online and they have this on, uh, um, and just on, uh, oh goodness, what is it? Apple music where you can just get an elephant sound and a, you know, um, oh, a dolphin and whatever. And I would just play the sounds and they would listen and they would try to find the animal that they were listening to. They loved it, but at the same time, they're learning a very important skill that's actually going to lead them to phonemic awareness. Because if they can't identify a big sound like what a dolphin sounds like, and I think if you listening right now, you probably are hearing that dolphin sound in your head. So they need to be able to identify these big sounds. So let's start with this big idea of animals, and then let's move to smaller, um, smaller sounds. Um, one of the games that they suggest there is listening to sounds, which is just stopping and taking the kids maybe to the lunchroom or taking them, um, you know, outside on the playground and having them close their eyes for 30 seconds and then just start accumulating, listening to all the different sounds. And then when you, when they, you have them open their eyes, what did you hear? And so, and here's the thing, what I love about this is it's also building their oral language at the mm -hmm. same time because they have to communicate what it is that they heard. Um, and then they even give you ideas on, okay, like rate the loudness. When you said you heard someone running through the gravel, was that on a scale of, you know, zero to five, was that a two or a one? So then they're having to analyze the sound as far as how big or small it was um, and things like that. So they gave you lots of great examples on how to do that. Um, and then, I, um, they do sequence of sounds. So we used to play this game in our class where everybody had to put their heads down and then I had a designated student that would have to go and do three things. So it was like slam the door, kick the trash can, you know, sit down in their chair or something like that. So first of all, the, the student got to do whatever they wanted, three sounds, and then they had to sit down and then everybody had tried to tell them what the three sounds were that they heard. Um, you can play this anywhere, but uh, that was one of their suggestions. And then I don't know if you ever have, you all have ever done this, but um, they say play a game called listen to what doesn't make sense. And I said, I do this when I correct kids because it's hard sometimes when kids are little and they're being sweet, but they're doing something wrong um, to directly like come at them, like get down or stop that or, you know, that kind of thing. So I'll say something like the other day, my niece was up on a t little child's table that she was not supposed to be on and I was like Nora can you jump on that table and she just whipped around and looked at me like that's you just told me to jump on the table I was like oh that's 
what are you supposed to be doing? She's like, I'm supposed to get off the day block. Like, that's right. <laughs> but she, I didn't even think about it, but when they were suggesting this, they were saying, if you've read a book many times, like a repeated reading or, or like a big book that you've read several times in your class, the next time you read it, say something different mm-hmm. than, and they gave the example of where the wild things are. Um, it says, make invent changes like they roared their terrible whispers and mashed their terrible potatoes and rolled their tel- terrible bellies. And so <laughs> the kids are supposed to go, that's not right. And you're just like, oh, they heard the difference. Oh, what did they say? Are they mashing their potatoes? Are they are they terribly loud whispers? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and then they gave an example of a nonfiction way to do it, which is instead of a bat sends out, um, so they're reading a book by Gail Gibbons on bats, instead of a bat sends out rapid beeping sounds too high-pitched for people, it's a bat sends out rapid beeping sounds that hurt people's ears. And so if you've read it several times, then the child goes, no, it's high-pitched. It's not, it doesn't hurt people's ears. We can't even hear it. And you're like, oh, so not only did you hear the difference, but also now we're discussing content because you have to know that high-pitched isn't okay. something we can even hear. So, um, and then moving on from, I really liked, I talked more about that section because those are things that I think get overlooked. The next section you probably, as a teacher, will be more familiar with, which is rhyming games. So things like playing the rhyming name game where you pick an object in the room or a person's name and then everybody has to come up with a rhyming word, real or nonsense. And they pointed out this, I thought this was great, um, that ELL students, um, one of the ways reasons you would use nonsense words, because I'm kind of a practical person, I'm like, why are we using nonsense words? I mean, it's fine if a child gives it to me, but I'm not going to encourage nonsense words. But one of the things they said is, if you're learning a new language, everything is nonsense okay. to you. And so an ELL student in a world where lots of nonsense words are encouraged is someone that can more freely participate. And I was like, oh, you know what? I never thought about it that way. That's a great point. Um, So rhyming name games, or you can pick objects and rhyme with those. Um, Reading rhyming books, which is a big, you know, that's why we read. I told my students the other day, I was like, everything can be solved with a book. Almost Mm -hmm. every issue that Mm -hmm. in teaching reading can be solved with a book. So if a child can't produce a rhyme, read a rhyming book several times and they will start to produce the rhyme just from memory and then they will get the pattern. So, um, and then rhyming and moving. Um, we did something similar to this in class the other day where I said two words and if they rhymed, they told me that they were safe and if they didn't rhyme, they were out. So we played a little baseball game where they got to do safe and out. And especially if kids have been sitting a long time, they want to uh-huh. move. So, um, and then moving from there into um, what se- um, they talked about what sentences are and so how can we um, you know play games where they have to put sentences together um, and they, they gave them sentence stems so they'll they would say um, something like um, this morning I and then every kid had to finish it so it's something that tells the who and the what what who, who they are and what they did so again they talk about games for that um, and then finally now we're back um, the idea is is that, um, well, and actually, before I say that, before I get to the last part, one thing I did want to talk about is they pointed out on page 39, which I thought was great, um, this researcher, Perfetti, it says, a prominent cognitive scientist has shown in elegant and extensive research that proficient readers know a great deal about words. They know the meanings, multiple meanings of lots of words, how to spell them correctly, how they're pronounced, what part of speech they are, um, and all these sorts of things about words. And he said, that all starts when you just start playing with words from the very beginning. And I think that's what, if we can boil it down, phonological awareness is just starting to play with words because what are words? It's what Toby said. They're sounds that we co-articulate. And so if we start playing with sounds at the very beginning, they're more partial to words. Um, And then finally, um, syllables, breaking words into syllables. Uh, I'm sure a lot of us are more familiar with syllable games. Um, I liked this one because it was more hands-on. They said give them Legos um, and then, you know, two Legos for two syllable words and then just start giving them two syllable words, table, have them pull it apart and then slap it back together and say the whole word. If you want to do three syllable words, give them three Legos and so on and so forth. And then finally, um, one of my favorites, which is onset and rhyme and playing with them isolating the 
first part of the word and then the vowel and everything after it. And I love how it's just taken us all the way down to now smallest unit of sound because we've gotten them from big sounds down to almost the smallest sound and now we hand it off to phonemes, which is the most important part. Well, something that you said I had jotted down a minute ago, I didn't right. even make this connection, but I, when you were talking about words and then syllables and then onset and rhyme and then phonemes, mm-hmm. I was thinking of Lego blocks oh, anyway. The whole time anyway. So, you know, you think of, you think of words, they're the six dotted blocks. Mm-hmm. And then you think of syllables, they could be the four dotted blocks. And oh, yeah. Onset and rhyme could be the two dotted blocks. And then, so you could take a word and literally show them. And then the phoneme oh, would be idea. the one uh-huh. dot block. Blocks. Yeah, block. So, oh, I'm gonna go and get some Legos, and we're gonna do that in <laughs> class next week. That's a great idea. Because you're you're literally talking about building blocks. Yes, of exactly language. Of, of language. And I think that's like I said, this is what's great about talking with your colleagues and things like that. Is you're like, oh, someone will say something, you're like, that's a great point, or that's a great idea, and and it goes back to what we said, being open to making some changes. And I here. think it was last week. Or I don't know when it was, <laughs> but we <laughs> talked about. It's what happens when you have a hundred years. <laughs> um, we talked about how abstract these concepts are, mm-hmm. and we are teaching them to children who are in a very concrete cognitive stage of development. Life. Absolutely. So anything that we can do to take this abstract idea mm-hmm. of how big is a word and what's a syllable and what's an onset and rhyme and make it concrete and tangible for them is going to stick with them. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, <coughs> something that we don't, um, <coughs> if we just keep it at spoken word, which is the premise of phonological awareness is just right. about spoken word. But if we can bring in something that's tactile and and kinesthetic and Mm -hmm. tangible, something that we can move around and make a concrete representation of an abstract idea. Concept for them. Well, even just just the or in this idea where they're like, you look at a table and you go, okay, now we're going to divide this word. Even just seeing that object Mm -hmm. for the kids is, it makes it a little more, a little less abstract for them because they actually see the object while they're trying to manipulate that sound. Um, but yeah, I mean, anything where you can touch things like Legos, um, you know, and I'm sure with phonetic awareness, you're going to talk more about more concrete or yeah, concrete things that they can do. Well, so just to uh, reiterate, revisit, phonological awareness is the awareness that spoken language is compo- composed of the units of sound. Whereas phonemic awareness is the very individual smallest unit of sound. So as Sarah said, we're going from, you know, spoken word and we're, we're boiling it down to the individual units of sound, which can be difficult to do. As Toby mentioned, sounds in speech are co-articulated. So they can be very difficult to... Um, stretch those out and hear the individual sounds and sometimes it can feel a little awkward and clunky when you're trying to do it. Um, One of my former students reached out to me the other day. She was doing homework with her first grader and they were looking for short A words and they were trying then to um, segment and blend these words that had the short A sound in them. And she she messaged me and she said, is Anne a short A word? I'm like, yes, has the short A sound in it. Uh, she said, because it doesn't sound right when you segment it and then when you try to blend it back mm-hmm. together um, and then can and pan, I think were other words in this decodable text that this child was practicing with. Um, and I'm like, well, it's because the sound that the N makes after that short A is a nasal sound, and it's hard to separate those sounds. Um, so it, we, we get to this 
concept of phonemic awareness where it becomes very discrete sounds and talking about things that uh, can be difficult for some. Uh, one thing that just, it sort of fascinates me, but you know, it's also interesting to know that every language has its own unique set of phonemes, but something that um, is, it's important to remember the infant's brain establishes categories for and can identify the sounds in the language spoken by caregivers in their environment from 10 months onward. So at 10 months of age, a child is uh, able to categorize and identify these sounds. At the same time, our brain is carving out these neurons for speech sounds that aren't heard in our caregiver's language between 10 months and three years. So that is a relatively short period of time. Any sounds that aren't spoken to that child between 10 months and three years of age is pretty much gonna be thrown out the back door. And mm -hmm. it's going to be difficult for them to retrieve those sounds or reproduce those sounds in speech later on. Oh, wow. So when we think about that, it's really think impactful. It, it is impactful. And when we think about our kiddos who have spent maybe the first three or four or five years of their lives speaking a different language, mm -hmm. and then they come to school for the first time, and we're trying to get them to isolate sounds to hear them and then in turn articulate those sounds mm. and it's difficult for them to produce some of those sounds because they weren't spoken in their language you know what that makes me think of though because I, I imagine as a parent that would make you really nervous to know like oh if I don't say <laughs> these sounds repetitively yeah. then they may not have the space for them but that, that it goes back to the title of our podcast. That's why we read. That's why we read. Because you may not be speaking them in your daily language all the time, mm -hmm. but books have tons of sounds in them. And songs, singing songs oh, with your kids, yeah. you know, doing nursery rhymes. My grandmother mm -hmm. was big on nursery rhymes. We yeah. learned them all when we were little. But just those interactions that are so crucial in those early childhood years, mm -hmm. um, here in the Tulsa area, we have this uh, movement of uh, talk, read, sing, mm -hmm. and those are so critical. And now we know by the time a kiddo hits three years of age, if they haven't heard it, it's going to be difficult for them to, to get those sounds back in their language. So that's something important to keep in mind. Um, you know, English language learners is, is a whole subject of its own, but... Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just English language learners, but we have some kids, unfortunately, who grew up and haven't been spoken to or mm -hmm. spoken much to in those first three years of their lives. So no. they don't don't have um, exposure to those sounds. Yeah. Uh, so when we think about phonemic awareness, like Sarah said, it comes down to the very discrete individual sounds. And then the things that we need to be able to do with those sounds, starting with isolating beginning sounds in words and ending sounds in words. So what's the first sound you hear in the word dog? They don't have to know anything but be able to say d. And yeah. it's not duh. We don't want to have that <laughs> uh sound on the end. It's d. It's a very short clipped sound. Um, and then what sounds do we hear at the end of words? And having um, them practice isolating final sounds. And we want to make sure that our kiddos can do this. First of all, that they can hear the sound. Second, that they can isolate or separate those sounds and identify what they are. It's going to be important after we master this idea in phonemic awareness, we're going to start putting letters to those mm -hmm. sounds yeah. and beginning to build words. So we start with that great big concept of spoken word and we come all the way down to the individual units of sound as Sarah said, just so we can start to loop back up into syllables and words and sentences and, you know, creating whole um, pieces of thought. Yeah. Blending and segmenting are really important uh, tasks to do within the realm of phonemic awareness. We have to be able to stretch words out to hear those individual sounds 
and we also have to be able to blend those sounds back together. Again, we're doing this because when we have kiddos who sit down and want to start uh, writing something, they need to be able to stretch those words out, to hear those individual sounds, and then to know what letters are we going to use, the graphemes that represent those sounds that we're looking for. So, we, so we've isolated beginning and ending sounds. We can even get to the point, obviously, where we're going to isolate and hear medial sounds. We're segmenting and blending. So we're stretching out, we're putting back together. And then we start with the manipulation tasks like Sarah talked about, deleting sounds, um, substituting sounds. We can add sounds in. Um, anything that we can do to get kids to learn how to manipulate those sounds in language is going to help them when they are beginning to crack that code, when they are going to put those graphemes, the letters together that represent those sounds. Um, oh, I just had a thought and it went away because of the hundred years of experience. <laughs> they come and go quickly these days. Uh, maybe it'll, <laughs> maybe it will come back to me in just a minute. Um, uh, one thing that's interesting to note that as I was reading the Know Better, Do Better book um, was, and Toby talked about it a little bit, <clears throat> phonological and phonemic awareness and phonics take place in different parts of the brain. So we have that active phonological processor part of our brain, but if that piece isn't engaged or we don't have that information in there that we need, it's going to make the phonics piece of, of reading and writing difficult, if not impossible. Mm -hmm. um, there is evidence that, uh, well, evidence that phonemic awareness can be taught to young children and that such teaching can have positive effects on early reading acquisition. We also know that kids who are lacking phonemic awareness will struggle learning mm -hmm. to read. It's not a, a may, <clears throat> it's not a may mm -hmm. or may not, they will struggle. Um, <clears throat> sorry. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of states who um, have instituted dyslexia legislation are now screening preschool kids or kindergartners, first grade, and second graders. Well, and even up to third grade, they're screening them for phonological awareness because if they can't, if they identify them early and as early as three years old, they can start those interventions and train their brain to start hearing those individual sounds. I was reading in uh, the core teaching reading source book that uh, one thing that I think is important is that they said phonological awareness, phonemic awareness aren't the end goal. Mm -mm. They are the, like you said. It's a means I, to an end. Right. Like I can't get the orthographic map, you know, as they call it, our, our letter box at the back, or our word box at the back of our brain. That's the, the who's the guy? Eugene. Dehane. He talks about, like, that's that was his contribution. Is he's like, okay, there's this word box at the back of your brain, and your phonological awareness is here, but phonics is what connects those two, mm -hmm. like you said, uh, like Ingrid mentioned. And so you're right. If they don't have phonological awareness, they can't get back there to that part of the brain so you need that that connection piece. And so I think sometimes people are like, well, I don't do that now. And I'm like, that's not the point. The point is it's it's the um it's not the end, but it is the means mm -hmm. to the end mm -hmm. of the goal that you have. And that's why in our scopes and sequences, phonological awareness is typically mastered by a certain point, depending yes. on on where you are in Oklahoma or yeah. In the, in the nation, nation. <laughs> phonological awareness is typically mastered at some point. Yeah. Um, in in the Know Better, Do Better book, it gives us a good reminder that phonemes or those individual sounds are what help us understand the relationship between those letters and sounds and words. And it's also important to note that in English, we have about... 44 sounds mm -hmm. or phonemes. We have a hard time agreeing on that, but I think in this room we are pretty comfortable with saying about 44 sounds mm -hmm. and 26 letters or 
you know, combinations of letters that represent those sounds. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that throws in another level of difficulty for some people. Um, uh, there it went again. <laughs> Goodness. Um, it's all right. We can just delete this part out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay. Toby mentioned this earlier. There are some challenges to teaching phonemic awareness. Uh, the, the first problem is the identification of phonemes within words that a child does not perceive subsounds in words. Mm. Um, our, I guess that's where our brains are not wired to do that. It's not a natural process. It's something that we have to work toward. Uh, that's why all of the opportunities to talk and mm -hmm. play with language and manipulate so sounds cool. are important because it's like exercising a muscle in your body. You yeah. have to continue to do it to, to make it work, to get better. You don't just start lifting 100-pound right. weights. Yeah. You start with 5-pound weights and you and work that, up. That's a great analogy because phonemic awareness, because it's the ultimate kind of goal of phonological awareness, it is like lifting the 100-pound weight. Mm -hmm. And phonological awareness activities before that, like um, I, in this book, Know Better, Do Better, they described it. They said, a child is not going to be able to tell the difference between leave and live and rid and red if they can't tell you that cat and rat rhyme. Mm -hmm. Because that's a bigger chunk. They should be able to hear that bigger chunk. And But the idea is, is that if they can't lift the little weight, which mm -hmm. is to rhyme, then they're never going to be able to lift the 100-pound weight because their muscle isn't... The muscle of listening and 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 uh, you used a big word. I can't remember Did what it I? Was. But like the sub, uh, oh, the sub the sounds. subsounds. Perceiving you're like, the subsounds. If you can't perceive the bigger subsounds, you're never going to get the little one. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's so true. You you know you know that wordplay is important and rhyming is important. But when um, you when you start to realize, oh, that's what's going to undergird that phonemic awareness, which is ultimately where we're headed. Yes. Um, because if you can't hear every sound in the word, then you can't spell the can't word spell or read the word. word. Right. <laughs> and you're like, and that's what we want to do, right? With students, we ultimately want to make them responsible mm -hmm. for the reading and the writing, and they can't do that if they do, if they can't even perceive that individual sound. So, yeah, uh, I love that. I, I thought that was, you know, it's, it's a good visual to give mm -hmm. us or again something that makes it a little more concrete <laughs> even for us we need for the us. concrete <laughs> the second reason and we've talked about it a couple of times it's hard uh, for us to segment phonemes is because phonemes overlap in speech production it is mm -hmm. hard to separate those co-articulated sounds like can it's hard to pull that a ah and n apart because when they go together that's it's really not an a ah and an mm -hmm. n and anymore Oh, I just uh, remember those little first graders, can, can, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I was like, can. <laughs> Go through your nose. <laughs> Another reason that segmentation is difficult for young children who have not yet learned to read is that they do not have much knowledge of English orthography, which is the essence of spelling. It's that, you know, beautiful word. That's mm -hmm. why it's difficult for us sometimes to to not get it mm -hmm. because we already know the sounds and the words and we've already mapped yes. them orthographically, um, which is why sometimes nonsense words help because mm -hmm. we haven't necessarily mapped those words orthographically, even though we can pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's not quite the same, but it gets us a little closer. Um, and you, that's such a great point that you bring up because you're like, Oh, you already see the word in your yep. head. It's mm -hmm. already mapped Every time. in your head. So trying to explain something that you already see in your head to someone that cannot see that mm -hmm. yet, it's like, I mean, it'd be like trying to describe, like, I've seen this building back in, you know, my hometown, and I'm trying to come here and show you, tell you how to build it with just words and or sounds. And you're like, oh, wow, that, you have to remember it when you're a teacher, like, it's mm -hmm. you're teaching to someone who can't see what you see. And so you do have to be very explicit with sound uh, when you're working with them and what you want them to do because yeah, they don't, they're not, it, it, I said, it's kind of, I, one time I was trying to explain to a student and I said, you know, when your parents would like 
jerk when you were they were trying to teach you how to drive and they would like grab the side of the wall and you know cuss and all the things <laughs> and you would be like what is your problem like i don't feel like it's that big of a deal but they it driving so automatic to them they do it without even thinking and when you first learn you're trying to like look in your rearview mirror and 10 and 2 and do all the stuff and for you it's like 47 steps just to get on the highway and for them they can do it while yelling at you and listening to the radio and talk you know and turned just, all the way around yeah. in your seat pointing their finger at your little brother right. in the back yeah. seat. while you're on the phone with someone going hold on a second you know i've got to talk to you know richard in the back and you're like oh well yeah they're doing it automatically for them it's already automatic for you it's not you're having to think of every little step and that's that's where our kids are they're having to think of every little thing when we're like, it's not that hard. It's just these three sounds. <laughs> it's cut out. There right? is evidence now that sort of negates what we were taught in the very early years of phonological and phonemic awareness, which was that idea that you could do it in the dark. Yes. That it was just what you heard. But there is mounting evidence that tells us as soon as a student demonstrates an ability to uh conduct those phonemic awareness tasks yeah we should start pulling in letters to represent those sounds so that they can begin to make those connections with this is the sound i hear this is the letter that represents that sound they should already know the names of those letters Mm -hmm. Uh, that should already be mastered and automatic but now we're going to take this letter uh, b that represents the b sound in baby and we're going to write this on the page. Or when I see it in print, I know, be, the baby. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's so important to remember, too, because phonemic awareness is the foundation of phonics. Mm-hmm. So, and phonics is just simply the rules that govern yes, the, the sounds and yeah. the phonemes. Yeah. So you're like, oh, yeah. I mean, let's not keep them over here just in the world of sound. Once they got it, let's start pouring those letters mm-hmm. right on top of that. But we cannot ask them to do something in phonics that they haven't demonstrated an ability to do in phonemic awareness. So they what can do you be mean by that. So uh, if if I'm only working on beginning sounds in phonemic awareness, isolating beginning sounds, right. uh, I can't expect a child to do a spelling test with CVC words. Right. Yeah. So, they don't have the the. Right. Final sounds or the right. radial sounds. So I can't ask them to do in phonics what they haven't demonstrated proficiency in phonemic awareness. No. You can move way ahead in phonemic awareness and get along that continuum pretty quickly. Uh, the other thing to remember is um, there's some evidence phonemic awareness instruction should be mastered in, what is it, like 12 weeks? You should be mm-hmm. able to master the continuum uh, you know, with 10 to 15 minutes of instruction a day for 12 weeks. That's your normal, typical, this is when it's going to happen. But you've got to assess your kids, observe them in, in whole group instruction, and maybe you need to pull them back and do some extra lessons in small group. Um, we didn't get a whole lot of time to talk about assessments and activities. There are some great phonemic awareness assessments, phonological awareness. Um, we talked about Kilpatrick earlier, the past test. Uh, There's also another one that is um, sort of associated with the Literacy First process. It's the one that comes from the uh, Sounds in Action book by Yvette Zagantz. She has a past test as well, but it is the Phonological Awareness Skills Test, P-A-S-T. Using something like that just to do a a quick assessment, whether they've mastered mastered it or not. The other thing to keep in mind is just because they've mastered it doesn't mean you don't ever need to go back and revisit. Those are things that we mm-hmm. need to constantly be reviewing, revisiting, maybe some things that you throw into your transition time activities throughout the day that yeah. you know we're gonna work on rhyming today. And so when I ask you to line up today, when I call your name, you're gonna have to give me a rhyming word, mm-hmm. a word that rhymes with your name before you can line up to go to lunch or recess or whatever. Um, and that's a great point for teachers is that a lot of this wordplay and sound play can be done in those filler times, and mm-hmm. it will actually keep them mentally engaged yes. 
you know, while they're lining up. And you can do it in the hallway on your way to, mm-hmm. you know, to the gym or to the cafeteria, doing to... some of those things. And your kiddos can do it quietly. You can ask them to to uh, segment words, count phonemes, and they can do that silently while you're walking oh, yeah, down the hall. Yeah, they can just show you. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but they could just finger spell your fingers, yeah. and, and show you how many sounds are in a word. So you can make really good use of your time uh, just by filling in some of those things. Sarah said, there's nothing that you can't accomplish with a book. Um, There are lots of books that you can just grab and you can ask kids to do a phonemic awareness task with a a page, a sentence, a word Mm -hmm. in that text as you're reading. So you can constantly incorporate those things. Uh, There are great resources, activities to do. the Know Better, Do Better book has some activities embedded within it. Another one, I swear, I keep losing the same piece of paper today. <laughs> so many times I've put it in so many different places. But um, these are things that we can put in our show notes. But some great websites to visit are Make, Take, Teach. Uh, and then one that I found recently that I am sort of obsessed with is Teach Outside the Box. Uh, Of course, Reading Rockets, we've mentioned that already. Florida Center for Reading Research has some excellent phonological and phonemic awareness activities that are ready to print and go. And then uh, UFLY, the University of Florida Literacy Institute, has great resources as well. They're everywhere. One thing that I would caution, if you're looking for a phonemic awareness activity and you go do a Google search for phonemic awareness activities or you're on Pinterest or Teachers Pay Teachers, Know that just because it populates in your search, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a phonemic awareness activity. Absolutely. It could actually be a phonics activity or it could be something else altogether. Um, you have to know what you're looking for and weed out some of the stuff. They don't do it to be, you know, malicious. They yeah. do it to get hits on their pages. You uh-huh. know, they're going to tag it all kinds of things so that it pops up in your search. Um, so just be... Uh, just be a critical thinker when you're looking for something and make sure that you actually got what you're looking for. Well, and it's, that's why definitions are so important is if, like she said, or, and Toby and Ingrid both mentioned this, the smallest unit of sound is a phoneme. So if it's something that they're playing rhyme, that's not a phoneme. That's, that's, that's phonological. phonological awareness. So I, you know, that's a great point is when you're searching, you're like, oh, great. Now I know to go do phonemic awareness activities. Don't end up doing, you know, a phonological awareness activity thinking that it's helping their phoneme awareness. But I love that you said 12 weeks. I keep, for, I, sometimes I forget that. That's kind that, of crazy, but. But what's wonderful about that is if that, if phonemic awareness or playing with individual sounds is what's so important, think about how quickly you could make a difference in mm-hmm. someone's life if you're just consistent mm-hmm. with that skill. Mm-hmm. I love that. Intentional. You've yeah. got to be mm-hmm. intentional. Um, phonemic awareness instruction can't be haphazard and yeah. you know yield the results that you're looking for. It has to be intentional. Use your assessments to drive your instruction. Use a, a good phonemic awareness curriculum, whatever you need to do, but make sure that you are addressing all of those discrete skills that they need because if they don't get those mastered, they are going to struggle with reading and writing later on. And what you said about asset, making sure that your assessment is driving your instruction, that's what's so great about the past mm-hmm. in, the, in its multiple versions of different yes. people doing it. <laughs> if you look at the sections of that assessment, it takes you right through phonological awareness. It starts with concept of spoken word, mm-hmm. then it goes into rhyme, rhyme, and then it goes into all the phonemic awareness subskills. Syllables. Mm-hmm. And why teach a child um, syllables if they've got it? Why teach a child mm-hmm. to add a sound or a phoneme if they've got it? Mm-hmm. Let's let's make sure that we know what they have or what they don't have. Um, but yeah, I think that's, you forget, you're like, oh, you, that assessment is not just to label a child. It's It actually helps you go, oh. You know, most of my kids are way up here in manipulation, mm-hmm. so that's where I'm gonna I'm gonna camp out. I'm not going to play with rhyme right. all the time explicitly. Yes, I'm gonna still do some wordplay because that's good yeah. for students. But yeah, I'm gonna I'm going to you use throw that it in assessment. with a book or a poem mm-hmm. that you're using in your class for something else. Yeah, you know, integrate it, revisit it, throw it in your centers. Let yeah. let kids 
um, practice with those things again. And let that assessment spark ideas. Like I know sometimes when I read the assessment, I'm like, oh yeah, like I'll see the examples that they give that the child is supposed to do. And then I'll use that walking down the hall that day because I'm like, oh yeah, when I was giving that assessment, it sparked in me. Oh yeah, remember to do this with your students. So yeah, I love that. Assessments are really important part of this. Anybody have anything else before we sign off for the day? Probably, but we've talked long enough today. <laughs> so Good. today we talked about the phonological awareness and phonemic awareness pillar for, for literacy. And next week we'll be talking about phonics. Oh. So join us. The then. big daddy. The big yeah. daddy. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Have a great week. And remember, that's, that's why, why we read. read.